Welcome to the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast, a podcast created to inform patients, families, and caregivers about important health transformation topics. Since the 2001 Crossing the Quality Chasm Report by the Institute of Medicine, our nation's healthcare system has recognized its need to improve quality of care by way of six important aims that make healthcare safe, efficient, effective, patient-centered, timely, and equitable. But we cannot hope to cross this chasm and achieve these aims until we make fundamental changes to the whole healthcare system. All levels of this work require dramatic improvements from the patient's experience. So this podcast is dedicated to you, the voices most underutilized resource in healthcare, our patients' voices. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Natasha Washington, president and founder of ATW Health Solutions and sponsor for the Patient Partner Innovation Community. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com. I am so happy to have today uh, with us, our guest, Eileen Karina. Uh, many of you may know her as the president and founder of Pulse. Uh, it's a New York, um, it was really, it's a grassroots organization that um, focuses on patient safety. It's an advocacy group. And if I'm, if I'm right, um, uh, Eileen, you started Pulse back in the 90s. Is that right? Well, we started, right, 1996, we actually started. Yeah, 1996, awesome. Please allow me to reintroduce uh, to our audience. (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, she does not need an introduction. Uh, Desiree Bradley, my co-host. Hey, Desiree. (laughs) Hello, hello, I'm here. (laughs) We ready to get going. Yeah, so so Eileen, here, listen, the conversation um, that we want to have with you is really about the work that you do, um, I would love for our audience to really understand um, the kind of advocacy work that you do in relationship to patient safety and uh, why that work is so important. One of the things that uh, my team has been talking about, and I think you do a very good job of this. I don't know a whole bunch of folks that do a good job at this, but you are one of those names that I know that do an excellent job. And that's really making um, this conversation around uh, patient safety, around uh, medical air, around um um, health equity in this space of patient safety, you really make it a conversation for the average individual, for a consumer, for, you know, um, regular folk, you know, that we talk to at the dinner table and things of that nature. And so tell us a little bit about Pulse and how you got started with your work. Well, the work started in the late 90s when I was, um, when my youngest son needed surgery and I didn't know how to find a doctor for him. And I started uh, lobbying in New York State for what we call physician profiles to get information on doctors' backgrounds. And to do that, I needed to talk to people about their, um, you know, about experiences, about um, how do they shop for a doctor. So while I was doing that, I found out that there was a lot of people that had experiences in the healthcare system that were less than positive. Um, and I myself lost my first son, my first child, from a tonsillectomy. 
and that's why it was very important to me now that my uh, my youngest son needed surgery, and I wanted to be more involved in his care. And um, so I was lecturing around the, the community and around the state about um, our rights as patients, that we needed more information on our doctor's background. And um, as I heard more and more stories, I found that um, people didn't know what to do with these stories, and it always seemed that it was about um, lawsuits and about um, blaming and about the anger, and that's really why the support group started, because we didn't know what to do. And, and we really learned that when people learn to tell their stories, we could learn from each other if people could share their stories in a way that others could learn from that. So we really don't focus on after the effect anymore. We, of course, we are support. We do support groups. We do um, education around patients and families. But most important is that we do educational programs about um, how to avoid medical errors, and that information comes from the people who work in the healthcare system. They're learning it. They do the research. They get the funding. And the problem is is that that information is not getting down to the patients and their family members to be part of the team. Mm-hmm. So that's how, um, and that's really how we got started. It wasn't, you know, when my son died, I liked the doctor that did the surgery, and I didn't feel that anything would be solved by blaming him or blaming the system that um, that caused his death. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be somebody down the road would learn from it. And many years later, I found that nobody was asking me, how things could have been done different, how the system could have improved. And I had a lot of answers. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of information that nobody wanted to hear. And so the next 20 years, and this actually this year is the 20th anniversary of my first patient safety conference that I went to in 1999. I showed up at a patient safety conference, and that's where I heard medical professionals um, talk about their losing family members from mm-hmm. medical errors. So mm-hmm. it wasn't about us versus them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. So, Eileen, I have a quick question. So, I know I met you a while ago on Facebook, on social media, and uh, really was interested in what you were doing. And I remember you telling me that anyone, any patient in their community that is interested could kind of start a Pulse Lights uh, program in their own local community. Is that still something that's possible? Well, we we did a strategic plan in, in um, 2016 where we've changed our name. Um, we used to be a lar- part of a larger group of, of um, advocates. We have really separated because we have our own mission. Um, and th- so the, the quick answer is yes, if they would like to be trained and do orientation and, um, and be part of what we do. So it's very specific our, our um, policies and procedures and our mission, then yes, people could follow that. We have another program. We have quite a few. You mentioned the health equity. Um, we have a, a, a program called Ask for Your Life, which is pretty specific for the African-American community that um, a physician on our board started with a nurse on our board to African-American women. And um, the doctor has since retired, who started this program, retired from her job and is traveling around the country offering this program to the African-American community. And we've done orientations online so that they could also be facilitators of the Ask for Your Life program. So we do encourage facilitators and people to, um, to be part of what we're doing if they'd like. 
Yeah, so one of the one of the things that's most intriguing uh, about your work, um, Eileen, has been um, just that level of integrity as it um, relates to vulnerable populations. I know um, for me, similar to you, um, it was the loss of my dad that really sparked my sense of urgency around our need um, to really commit more time and effort um, to the cause of helping um, everyday people understand uh, what goes on in the health system and also um, to give them a voice, to give them an opportunity to understand how their voice could also be used um, to improve the health health system. One of the things, I'm a, yeah, I'm a spiritual um, a woman, and one of the things that I was uh, doing over the weekend, uh, my pastor, Pastor Bill Winston um, of uh, Live and Word Christian Center um, in Forest Park, Illinois, he wrote a book called Faith in, in Marketplace. And I, I have actually a quote um, that made me uh, think a little bit about the work that you're doing. He he says in his book, he said, um, he said, the ministry of an entrepreneur is to find a cure or healing for the business world the same way a physician is trained to heal the body. They are apostles. So I, I, I consider myself um, in, in that space. Apostles of healing, both meeting the needs of humanity through good gifts and services. And so, you know, I oftentimes when I think about um, my career, you know, starting off in healthcare. Um, in in the 90s and how it really was a job at that particular time. And then my job morphed into a career because I actually fell in love uh, with the work of uh, being a part of this healing system, if you will. And then that career actually converted itself at some point into a passion. It was just, it was just something that I was very passionate about. And I began to um, do uh, research and that's where I really began to get in the whole equity space. But then that passion at some point really uh, morphed into what I consider now today ministry. Um, you know, it's uh, in, in, in this ministry work, you know, um, it, it doesn't really turn itself off. I, I find myself doing it, uh, what they say, both in season and out of season. And so I think, you know, what you have done also is, is similar to, you know, uh, what ministry does, right? Um, we really coach, we really heal, we really help people um, you know, through that learning process and engage them in a way where now they become a part of helping and healing for others. Can you talk a little bit about specifically what you're doing in the African-American community? Because when I think about vulnerable populations and, you know, obviously being a woman of color, I know um, the specific issues, you know, that, that our community deals with as it relates to just even understanding um, the health system, healthcare system. So I'm curious um, about the actual training that you've developed for um, the black community? Well, I get, you have to go back to how we get started with what we do. Um, when, when we develop a training or develop a program, it comes from the community. And I don't even mean community leaders. I mean the real community, the people who never heard the term patient safety before, mm -hmm. the real um, patients out there that, that are not like you and I. When we represent the patient's voice, we're really representing the patient. Um, advocate and the trained patient. We're not um, mm -hmm. patients like other people are patients. Mm -hmm. So when we go to a group, and, and I'll use the African-American group, but also um, people with HIV and people who are homeless and teen mothers living in shelters and the transgender community, all the different groups that we go to, very specifically talk to them about patient safety. I teach them about patient safety. What we know, I can't say that we're, you know, we're going to teach them everything, 
but we teach them what they could know. Um, and then we ask them, what is it like to be you? Mm-hmm. And when they start talking about the obstacles that they have in care, um, it becomes a training right there. We figure out what what it is, what are some of the things that, um, where we can improve. And when people talk to each other, then all of a sudden they become empowered. I mean, the whole Me Too movement is, is proof of that, of how that happens. When one speaks up, everyone speaks up. Mm-hmm. And in the Ask for Your Life, which is the, the uh, program for the African-American community, it was uh, two black women, that, uh, Dr. Farrington and um, Leslie Farrington and Beverly James from our board, who were doing a program for a group of women, um, middle-class black women, uh, mothers. They were they were a mother's group. And one of the women said, um, what do you do when you feel disrespected or you feel that you're not getting respected? And that triggered the whole, um, the whole movement that they started in uh, developing a training in for the African American community, and the, and the program is the, the website is askforyourlife.com, and, and the videos are on there, and some of the curriculum is on there. But it takes the information. Um, remember, there's research out there, plenty of research that Black women get substandard care. They their their maternal um, mortality is way um, worse than the white women. The, the Black men are dying younger. There's so many studies out there that this is not my decision or my opinion. These are this researchers' facts. Again, this information doesn't get to the public. We're bringing it to the Black community. Um, and they're telling them that this is the problem and how to speak up, be more involved, uh, take responsibility, and recognize that you could be a statistic. Mm-hmm. And and then practicing in our workshops, we, we do a lot of interaction. It's not a lecture. None of our workshops are just lectures. They're all interactive because if you practice um, saying something to somebody and and then practice repeating it back. It's 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 easier when you go to the doctor. If you feel the doctor's not paying attention to you, what do you do with that? Instead of feeling disrespected and being angry, how do you speak up to the doctor, recognizing they're people? They're they're just people too. Um, and then practicing in this in, in these sessions, we've done it with high school children. You know, we do it in high schools. Um, and, and they do it in the community, church groups, and and, um, and the practice is very real because they leave there saying, I could do this. Now I could do this. And yeah. that's what we're doing. It's, it's recognizing that there is a problem out there, and, and we have to be part of the solution as patients and family members in the support system. Yeah, the reason why I asked the question is because um, you learn very quickly that engaging uh, one one patient is not engaging another per- patient. And the way in which um, we uh, go about um, helping um, patients to engage the health system, teaching them um, about how to uh, be in partnership with the health system um, and giving them uh, tools to support even improvements in their own uh, health outcomes, I-, I think needs to be tailored, right, um, and, and appropriate to specific communities because communities, de- depend upon what subpopulation you're talking about, they have different experiences, they have different beliefs, they have, uh, you know, they're, they're these differences, right, um, that really make up the whole person. And if we're going to deal with people, um, then we need to address people um, where they are. We need to know where they are. We need to engage them where we are. And we need to help and to coach them. And I was just thinking about 
Um, so here in Chicago, uh, uh, there's a hospital um, in Inglewood, um, which is one of the poorest communities uh, um, in, in our area, actually one of the poorest communities in, in the country. And so engaging that community and actually getting patients um, that utilize that hospital, that live in that neighborhood, to want to be a part of um, quality improvement and to want to serve on a patient advisory um uh, patient advisory council actually took some real effort. It took it took effort in educating them to your point about what is patient safety. It took effort in terms of you know building their trust, right? That this just wasn't another um, you know this just wasn't another uh, program that uh, someone was having that was going to take a, a few weeks and then we kind of go away and we don't really do anything, right? Anything different. Um, and so it took a lot of muscle in terms of meeting them where they are, helping them to, to understand, um, helping them to uh, even uh, understand some of the uh, myths and some of even understanding some of the biases um, and helping them to get past some of that um, so that we could all partner together. But you got to be in good lockstep conversation with them. You got to be, you know, connecting the heart with the head with the community. And in order to do that, that means you got to know the community. And that's one of reasons why I really appreciate what you do because to your point you really get out in the community somebody tell me to recruit somebody I'm going straight to the street and I'm going to recruit folks from the street and that's something that you do and I really uh, appreciate that tell me a little bit about the transgender um, uh, community because I know that you know in having work with that community as well I know safety and I'm and when I say safety I'm talking about violence safety right that violence is one of the barriers that I've heard heard um, in working with that community that has really um, kind of uh, uh, been a barrier for access uh, uh, with them, that um, they have hesitancy in terms of engaging the health system, even in times when they're sick or they're ill, um, because of the way um, be- because of their thoughts or, or, or what they've seen as it relates to violence or the non-acceptance in the health system. Is there anything that you've learned in dealing uh, with the transgender population that you could share with our audience today? Um, everything. <laughs> I've learned everything. And, and I, I will be honest with you, the, 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 um, the safety about violence is not what, what I look at. And that's something that, that people who are transgender live with every day on the street, in the hospital, at the workplace. That's a fear constant mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily in the healthcare system. The healthcare system, it, there's a whole different um, safety issue that comes up because if they feel judged or feel that they're going to be uh, treated differently, somebody's not going to take them seriously. Uh, even using the appropriate pronouns or the appropriate name, uh, the chosen name instead of a, a, um, um, a um, you know, their, their birth name or their legal name considered, uh, it could be very insulting. So for somebody like you or me who, you know, if you mix up my pronoun and you call me he, I, I don't think anything of it because so what? Mm-hmm. Or you call me the wrong name. I mean, our parents do it all the time, maybe call us the wrong name. But for somebody who's lived like that for their whole life and, and, and didn't want that and has been fighting that their whole life, when they hear the wrong name, um, the legal name compared to their chosen name, it's very upsetting and, and there's a lack of trust. And once there's a lack of trust, a patient may not be honest. A woman, a transgender woman who goes into the hospital and doesn't feel the privacy 
you know, or their conversation might be overheard, if she's asked when her last menstrual cycle was, she's going to give a date. And that is a safety issue because she cannot, you know, there is no menstrual cycle. So, it, you know, she's protecting herself from discrimination, from um, having any a conversation that she doesn't want to have, but yet it's unsafe practice because she's not giving accurate information. Mm-hmm. Um, a transgender man, uh, you know, we do these trainings. I do these tra- trainings in hospitals with um, a pre- medical professional who is transgender, and he tells his story about um, before he went full, for his full transition, he um, was told to take off his shirt uh, for an EKG, and he asked for something to cover up because he still had breasts. And he is somebody that does EKGs in hospitals, and he ended up changing his whole practice and giving everybody a cover-up because people who aren't transgender may want to be covered up. Men may be too hairy or too skinny or too fat mm-hmm. and want a cover-up for modesty. So there's practices that we've learned from these groups of vulnerable populations that really can carry over to full um, safe and quality care for all patients, for all people who use the health care system. So the piece about safety for the, the transgender community is very different. Plus, you know, when they don't talk, we've had them talk about what their exact um, physical checkup in the doctor's office is like. If they're not talking about that, they're getting very different checkups. They're not aware of what one person's getting done and another person's getting done. So we've done a lot of work with that and um, and helping them. Um, you know, I've been to, through many surgeries with people. I've traveled the country to be with people. And remember, it's not just this, the um, se- um, sex change surgeries. Also, there's a lot of facial reconstruction. There's all kinds of surgeries that are done. It's not just the the, um, um, the sex change uh, uh, surgery. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that happens in the transgender community that people I don't think are aware that makes it very, very difficult, sensitive, and, and scary for people mm-hmm. to you know, be that vulnerable going into the healthcare system. And I've been there to just keep people out of a room. Healthcare providers are sometimes very curious about somebody who's transgender and have no reason to be in a room. Mm. So sometimes my role is just to keep them out. I was in a hospital where the volunteers wouldn't go in and give them a newspaper because they were afraid of people who were transgender, yeah. and that was acceptable. Mm. The oh nurse explained goodness. that to me, and she said that they just let them do that. So I had to go get a newspaper for a patient. And I think it also opens up the conversation to training for the healthcare providers. You know, we, I know when I got involved in patient safety way many years ago, I didn't even know what it was. And I consider myself a pretty savvy, smart person. Had no idea how I, as a patient, could be empowered in patient safety. Didn't think I had a, a place there. And so quickly learn, like, yes, you do have a place there, Desiree, and you can have your voice. So I think what you're doing is empowering the patients, but at the same time, showing these healthcare systems the gaps that they have, that they need to fill in the reverse. Like, they need to make sure that their staff have those trainings available to them so that they're able to engage those most vulnerable populations. And if they feel a little uncomfortable, let's address it. So I think what you're doing is really helping not only the patients, but also the healthcare systems as well. So I think, you know, we need the cowbell, the CMS cowbell to ring on this the podcast. Cowbell. All right, and the truth is we don't go into a hospital. We just went into a Midwest, um, a hospital in Pennsylvania 
way out in Pennsylvania, um, and trained their 800. They had mandatory training for 800 staff members. That was a huge undertaking, but uh, and they joked about that they were like from the 1950s. These these professionals didn't really even know terminology. They didn't. They knew very very little. And it was wonderful to be able to go in and have these conversations, these very candid conversations. But the fact is, is that we can't go in and, and, and I won't tell them what they need to do to change their behavior. We make them aware of their um, of their biases um, by by bringing it out, by you know encouraging them to think about what they what they think about. And these are are safe things to have conversations. You know, I have a, I have a, a saying that we deny, defend, and then we discriminate. Because if we deny that somebody's different, then we're and we're so busy defending what we've said, then we leave ourselves open for discrimination. And it's much easier for somebody to say, "What is it like to be you? Teach me what it's like, so I could be more sensitive," than to try to deny that we look different or we are different. So if we talk about it, I could be more sensitive in the future to what's important to you. And that's really what we try to encourage in our in our work. And it's all around patient safety. This isn't really about um, you know, about anything else but safety. We bring safety into everything we do. Yeah, that's awesome. Trust is another word that you um, brought up. And um, uh, I know trust is uh, often an impediment um, in terms of um, really accessing co- uh, quality care uh, for many communities. Can you talk a little bit about trust and what you, what you think um, uh, has been most uh, notable about the work that you've been doing in the community as it relates to trust? Well, I think the first thing we, we I bring up with trust, because it's funny that you bring up trust, is um, hand-washing is not about, I don't believe, hand-washing is really about the germs. I think hand-washing, and we always talk about tell your doctor to wash their hands. Well, I'm not going to do it because I want, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I'm, I just take care of me is my first thought. But the idea of somebody washing their hands is the trust that I could trust you to take care of me, and it's also a sign of respect. Mm-hmm. So those two things are real important. Trusting, a, you know, a patient who could trust the healthcare professional to be gentle and kind will be more open and honest, which will help them get more information and help them get a proper diagnosis and be, um, and somebody will feel safe if there's a trust. So, uh, you know, trust is really important in this whole scenario of patient safety because if there isn't this trust, then we're going to be misinformation. We're going to be not being honest with each other. And it will not only cost more, it will take longer to heal. Um, Diagnosis could be wrong. There's so many things that can go wrong if there's not a trust. So the trust is really a a relationship. It's about relationships. And, And keep in mind also our advocacy work, I do a lot at the bedside. We train people to go to the bedside. Um, and it's not about the clinical. We don't. I don't have a clinical background. I have the, the communication training, mediation, com- compassionate communication, active listening. This is what we teach in our training because the patient has to be the center of the care. The patient has to be the center. And when the patient realizes that they are the most important person there, that also builds the trust and the relationship. So as advocates, we need to be um, the bridge, not taking anyone's taking anyone's role away, we need to be building those relationships. Yeah, that's good stuff. So um, tell me tell me this. We, there's been a lot of um, work over the years um, to uh, improve quality and um, to certainly uh, improve uh, where we are as it relates to our nation. 
um, uh, related to patient safety, um, and that's to uh, reduce um, uh, medical errors, that's to reduce um, adverse events, uh, near misses, all of that. You know, so this work that you're doing, um, do you see or have you seen where there is um, a direct uh, connection or some correlation between the work that you're doing, talking when you talk about building trust and, you know, um, uh, teaching about uh, being culturally sensitive, so on and so forth, that these things actually do improve quality and safety? I mean, you know, what, what evidence do we have? Well, I think the problem that we have is that we've never been funded to, um, to, to measure our outcomes. Um, we know that there has been, you know, at the, when we go to the bedside with somebody, when we're with the family, when we train family and work with them, we know that outcomes have improved one at a time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a website, one is a number, because if it's your family, that's what's important. If we've saved one life, that's one life saved. Mm-hmm. And we aren't in a position, as much as we have tried, um, we have not been in a position to measure larger outcomes. We have... Um, small outcomes. We've worked with the day laborers at a trailer. We had a, a grant to work with them. We went back in, um, I think it was six six months after an 18 month program, and asked them about their, um, you know, what they've been doing differently. And that was a huge success because they did come back with that they now keep lists of their medication. They go together to the doctor. They go together to the hospital. The things that they do were now. Um, absolutely improved the things that they learned was very helpful. We've also do a high school program, and that really um, came back very, very positive. 133 um, high school students, 99% minority school. Uh, they were advocating for their parents. Many of them were Hispanic and black, and they were the uh, advocates for their parents. And that came back that they were changing their behavior also. So we've done things on small scales. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example that... You know, when you go on an airplane, you don't have to know how to fly a plane, but you need to know how to escape it. And we know where the life vests are and the seatbelts are. So when we go into a hospital, we're not given any information. And we don't have to be the doctor or the nurse, but we need to have some safety information to protect ourselves, especially if we start seeing things go awry and we need to speak up and be involved. Mm -hmm. We need to know how to do it. So we need to teach people how to become patients before going into the hospital, not giving them a, a brochure and their bill of rights when they're being wheeled into, from an ambulance, because that's where the information is. It's in the admission packet. We need to train people before they become patients. And that could be done in many, many different ways, um, all positive. We, we don't talk about blame because blame is after somebody's been injured. Mm-hmm. There's no point. In, we're not working on blame. We're working on um, on the positive things that can happen, the things that we've learned before going into the hospital, that people have come back to us over and over again and saying, I stopped that because I learned it in your course. That's positive. Wow. That's, that's measurement. That's measurement. Absolutely it is. Absolutely. You know, and I think I'm thinking about family members in my own, you know, in my own communities. And when you touched on the high school students that are advocating for their parents. I'm in Houston. Houston has a very large Latino population and I do work in many different areas here. And oftentimes when we're engaging them, whether it's a patient engagement or something in the hospital, 
they have their children with them to interpret for them, to give them that support. So I love that. That has got my wheels churning here in Houston. So Eileen, be looking out for a one-on-one call for me because I have to get this here in Houston. That this is this mind blowing. So that this. So be ready. Be and ready because I'm we're ready. ready. We're ready. <laughs> we, we've actually just finishing up a, a New York City contract um, training doulas um, to be advocates, and they had us turn the whole thing into a Spanish training. So we we had our whole training in Spanish and English. Now, which is and it's it's really it's been wonderful working with young people who are working as doulas to teach them to be advocates, and that's in Harlem and in Brooklyn we've been going now. Yeah, that's awesome. So I I just want to um, uh, pick it back on uh, what uh, Desiree said in closing. I would love to see us really um, spread the word about the work that you're doing um, across cities, across the country. So um, certainly this has um, been a value. Um, in terms of learning about um, the um, education uh, that you're doing uh, in the community, I should say learning more in depth about what you're doing in the community. And and again, certainly um, you've been around for a long time doing this work, and I know that um, your work is is highly credible. And uh, you know, to the point that Desiree made, like you're engaging real communities, you're engaging real people, um, and so we appreciate that. I'm gonna see if I can get. Let's see. Um, I'm going to see if I can get, uh, there we go. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, that's my little effort to get a a CMS cowbell going. There you go. There you go. Eileen, it has certainly been, um, a pleasure, uh, talking with you on today. We really appreciate all that you're doing. Um, and thanks so much for joining us until next time. Be healthy. Follow the PPIC community online at ATWHealth.com.